If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I'm going to ask you to turn once again this week to the book of Deuteronomy in the Old Testament. Once again, we are going to be in, in chapter 1 of Deuteronomy. What if you were in the habit of multiple times a week stuffing your face with a big, thick, juicy cheeseburger, a large order of fries, washing them down with a, a big Coke and and topping it all off with a thick and creamy chocolate milkshake. You know you shouldn't, but you can't stop. You pass the gym on the way back from lunch or on your way home from work, and you know you should exercise, but you don't. What do you need in your life at that moment to change your behavior? Not ketchup. A wake-up call. A wake-up call, which usually comes in the form of a visit to the doctor. Man, your cholesterol is sky high, your arteries are all clogged, you're on the verge of a heart attack. Wake-up call. Then you change your diet. Then you change your exercise habits. Maybe you spend money way beyond your means. You're so in debt that you are on the verge of losing everything. Maybe you already have. Wake-up call. Then you become responsible with your finances. Maybe you keep ignoring things that you need to change about yourself. But you just don't get around to changing those until you look around and your friends aren't there anymore. And sometimes, sadly, neither is your family. Wake up, call. Then you make the changes that you need to make. Why do we need wake up calls? Why are we, who are reasonably, reasonable people, willing to self-destruct until we get a wake-up call. Probably because we are one or a combination of all of these things. Stubborn, prideful, self-indulgent, spoiled, entitled, undisciplined. The list could go on and on, but all of us find ourselves uh, demonstrating these things in our lives. And so God has to issue wake-up calls to his people. Because we sometimes find ourselves in the self-destruct mode, spiritually speaking. And we are wrecking our spiritual lives with what we do with our physical lives. Well, listen, God does not want you and God does not want me to self-destruct. He doesn't. He's our father. He loves us, his children. He sent his son to rescue us, to save us, so that we would not be destroyed. Jesus came, the Son, so that we might have life, an abundant life, and not a self-destructive life. And so sometimes, God has to give us these wake-up calls to remind us of that, to remind us of, of who we are, to remind us of what He has given to us, to remind us how we are supposed to live our lives and what we are to do with them for our good and for His glory and for the sake of the spread of the gospel. You and I, we need to be obedient, disciplined children of God. And I hope that's what we'll see this morning as we come to our passage, which is Deuteronomy chapter 1. We're going to begin reading in verse 32, and I'm going to ask you to stand as we hear read together the word of the one and only true and living God. Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 32, this is the word of the Lord. Moses is speaking. In spite of this, you did not trust in the Lord your God, who went ahead of you on your journey, in fire by night and in a cloud by day, 
to search out places for you to camp and to show you the way you should go. When the Lord heard what you said, that was their grumbling and complaining, he was angry and solemnly swore, not a man of this evil generation shall see the good land I swore to give your forefathers, except Caleb, son of Jephthunah. He will see it, and I will give him and his descendants the land he set his feet on because he followed the Lord wholeheartedly. Because of you, the Lord became angry with me also and said, you shall not enter it either, but your assistant Joshua, son of Nun, will enter it. Encourage him because he will lead Israel to inherit it. And the little ones that you've said would be taken captive, your children who do not yet know good from bad, they will enter the land. I will give it to them and they will take possession of it. But as for you, you turn around and set out toward the desert along the route to the Red Sea. Then you replied, we have sinned against the Lord. We will go up and fight as the Lord our God commanded us. And so every one of you put on his weapons, thinking it easy to go up to the hill country. But the Lord said to me, tell them, do not go up and fight because I will not be with you. You will be defeated by your enemies. So I told you, but you would not listen. You rebelled against the Lord's command and in your arrogance, you marched up into the hill country. The Amorites who lived in those hills came out against you. They chased you like a swarm of bees and beat you down from Seir all the way to Hormah. You came back and wept before the Lord, but he paid no attention to your weeping and turned a deaf ear to you. And so you stayed in Kadesh many days, all the time you spent there. Then we turned back and set out toward the desert along the route to the Red Sea, as the Lord had commanded me. For a long time, we made our way around the hill country of Seir. Let's pray together. Lord, teach us now, we pray, from your word. We thank you for your spirit. He indwells us. And as you promised now, we pray that he would be our teacher. Lord, especially we pray that he would lead us, all of us here this morning, in the path of obedience and the path of a well-disciplined life before you. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. May be seated. As we saw last week, God's command to his people was crystal clear. He said to them, go and take possession of the land that I am giving you. I, the Lord God, I'm giving you your land. Go take possession of it. We saw as well the response of the people. And their response was to grumble and complain in, in the privacy of the, their tents. The truth was that God loved his people. He treasured them. That was the truth. But the people said, God hates us. The truth was that God had delivered them from the slavery of Egypt to deliver the Amorites into their hands so they could take possession of the promised land. But the people said, you delivered us from Egypt to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites, to destroy us. See how insidious and awful sin is? How it twists and mangles our thinking and our perception of what's true. And so the people rebelled against God. And they refused to obey his command. And so it's time for, you guessed it, a wake-up call. Because make no mistake about it, make no mistake about it, a life lived in rebellion against God, a life lived impugning the character of our good and gracious and great and glorious God is a life headed for destruction. Now that is the truth. And that's not what God wants for his people. 
And so he issues them a wake-up call. Look with me in verse 40. But as for you, God says, turn around and set out toward the desert along the route to the Red Sea. So here the people are on the edge of the promised land. They have the report of the spies that went to check out the land first. They know that it's a land of beauty. They know that it is a land of bounty. And here they are facing this beautiful, bounteous land. But God says to them, turn around and take the route to the Red Sea. Oh no, not that. We've been that way already. Already traveled from the Red Sea to this place. We know what it's like. Look in verse 19. It's described as a place that's vast and dreadful. Deuteronomy 8.15 says it's a vast and dreadful desert that thirsty and waterless land with venomous snakes and scorpions. Commentaries describe it as a region characterized by fruitlessness, scarcity of water, black chalk hills, boundless white plains of blinding white sand, suffocating west winds, all lying under the heavens, glowing as a sheet of metal. Now that's the route to the Red Sea. That's the wake-up call for these people of God. And so the people respond to the wake-up call. Look in verse 41. We've sinned. We've sinned against the Lord. We will go up and fight as the Lord, our God, commanded us. See how they condemn themselves? They convict themselves by their own words. They knew all along. They knew all along it was the will of God to go and take the promised land, but they rebelled against him because they thought obedience to be a light matter. They thought their lack of trust and faith and the power of God and the provision of God was unimportant. They thought that obedience was at their will and on their terms. But the wake-up call changed their mind. It did what a wake-up call should do, change their behavior. We will go up and fight. Or did it? Did it really change them? Were their hearts truly changed, or did they just want to avoid discipline? Now, you know the answer to that question, because since all of us were children, since all of us were children, we have always found ways to avoid taking our medicine, haven't we? We've always been willing to say whatever we need to say, to do whatever it is we need to do so that we are not disciplined. But saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, it doesn't mean that we've truly repented of our sins. Because repentance requires a change in behavior. Repentance literally means turning around. Turning your back on the direction that you are heading and turning around and walking in the opposite way. And so saying I'm sorry is only step one. Followed immediately by an intentional determination not to do the same thing again. And so I think it's very interesting But here in verse 40, God tells his people, turn around. Now, I don't know if God intended that to be a physical representation of of the spiritual truth that he was trying to teach them. But I know this, the Israelites needed to turn their backs on the direction that they were walking, which was blatant faithlessness and disobedience. They needed to turn their back on that direction and they needed to go in the opposite way which was blatant trust and faith in God. 
And so the Israelites were required to physically turn their backs on the scene of their disobedience, on the scene of their faithless distrust of God. And they had to walk away from that. And they had to walk toward a a life in the desert in which they would be required to live by faith and trust in God. God sends them along this route to the Red Sea because He wants their hearts. It's a wake-up call. God wants a change of heart, not just regret. And God knows their hearts aren't changed. That's clear. Look in verse 41. The people say, we'll go up and fight as the Lord commanded us. Verse 42. But the Lord said, do not go up and fight because I will not be with you and you will be defeated by your enemies. Verse 43. But you would not listen. You rebelled against the Lord's command and in your arrogance you marched up into the hill country. And so as it turns out in this story, repentance wasn't really repentance after all. It was just a meaningless corporate, oh, we're sorry, to avoid the discipline for what turned out to be double disobedience. God said go, they refused. God said don't go, they went. Disobedient people. They've got a long way to go, spiritually speaking, and God's going to get them where they need to be. And God's going to stick with them as they take that journey to where they need to be, spiritually speaking, every step of the way. Because think about what God could have done. Here's what God could have done. After the people sinned or rebelled, and after they said, we've sinned against the Lord, we will go up and fight. God could have said, okay, then, that's better. You know? and, and, and he could have let them go. He could have let them fight. He could have let them win, and it would have all been over. It seems to me that would have been the easy way. Wouldn't it? The easy way for God, the easy way for these people. But God doesn't choose the easy way. Because the easy way for these people won't achieve what God knows is best for them, what they need. Years ago, Dr. James Dobson, a child psychologist, wrote a book entitled, Parenting is Not for Cowards. And those of you who are parents know the truth of that. uh, Parenting isn't for cowards, and, and it isn't. Parenting is difficult. Parenting takes effort. And probably the most difficult part of parenting is discipline. Issuing those wake-up calls to our children. If you behave in this way, this will be the consequence. And then following through with what you say. Because we as parents don't like to see our children sad or unhappy. We don't like to see them cry. We hate to be the source of their tears or their pain. And so the lazy parent, the lazy parent does not discipline. Takes too much effort. It's much easier, believe me, this is so true. And please don't look at my children like everything I'm going to say they did because they didn't do. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? You can laugh at that. I'm sorry, kids. It's easier to believe a well-told lie from a child who has been caught than it is to enter into the arduous task of discipline. If their explanation for their crime seems reasonable enough, then you can say, oh, okay then, and guess what? You're both off the hook. Dad, I I didn't mean to, dot, dot, dot. Okay then, fine. But I I didn't know that you wanted me to, dot, dot, dot. Oh, okay then. Dad, really, I just thought you meant, dot, dot, dot. Oh, okay then, don't worry. See, it's easier to believe the lie. Because if you discipline, 
you have to administer that discipline. And when you issue that wake-up call, you have to follow through for change to come, and that's never fun. If you take away the video game or the internet as a punishment for a week, then it's going to take your time because you are going to have to entertain that child who now has nothing to do. That's going to be hard for you. If you take away their cell phone, then you have to suffer the inconvenience of not being able to get in touch with them, and you have to stand against the barrage of begging for the phone back and the promises, Father, I've sinned against you, I promise. I will never send or receive a text like that at 3 o'clock in the morning again. I won't. If you ground them from using the car, then you have to be inconvenienced to take them where they need to go and send somebody else to do your errands for you. If you discipline... You have to brace yourself for the drama, the screaming, for the crying, and in some cases, I hate you, you're ruining my life. Happens. The most difficult is that you actually have to sit down and talk with them. And you've got to try to discern what it is in your child's heart and why it's there. And you've got to stick with them until you get to the bottom of it, until change comes. And listen. It's a whole lot easier to pop a bowl of popcorn and put in a fun DVD. That's the truth. But when you don't let your child get away with disobedience, you're forcing them to be obedient, which is the very thing they should be. But the point is, it's going to cost you to do it. And God is willing to pay the price to discipline His children. It's worth His effort because God's discipline is not revenge on us. Do you please, please, do you know that? God's discipline in your life and my life is not revenge on us for bad behavior. God's discipline is for regeneration. God's discipline is for restoration. God's discipline is to renew our hearts. And the ultimate goal of God's discipline in our lives is so that we would become more like Jesus. So parents, when you discipline, you reflect, though in an imperfect way, your love for your child And then when God issues his own wake-up calls in their lives, it won't be such a stretch for them to know, hey, this comes from a heart of love. And when you discipline, you demonstrate for them that life is a life of discipline. The Christian life is a life of discipline and not indulgence. I learned a life lesson within 24 hours after becoming a father for the very first time, which has now been exactly one half of my life. And this is the lesson I learned. You always have to keep the blanket wrapped tightly around your precious child. You always have to keep the blanket wrapped tightly around your precious child. I can remember seeing Kate, who is my firstborn, sprawled out on the hospital leg bed. Her arms and legs were flailing and her lungs were wailing while I was trying to get the blanket folded and wrapped tightly around her. And the moment that she and every one of my children after her, when they were finally wrapped tightly and when their arms and their legs could not fly and flail wherever they wanted to go, they immediately settled down into a peaceful calm. Did you experience that? It's the truth. That's how babies are. They didn't want to live without the safety and the discipline of that blanket. Discipline, a tightly wrapped blanket, is what we all need. We need discipline. And we've already seen in our studies here of Deuteronomy chapter 1 that God gives His people 
what they need. Discipline. He disciplined them with land. He said, here are the boundaries. Here are the lines. Here are the geographic ropes that hem you in. This land and no other land belongs to you. Within the confines of this land, you will have all you need and you will be able to do all that I call you to do. He disciplined them with law. Here are ten easy laws for you to remember. These laws hem you in. These laws bind you, and you must live inside the parameters of these ten laws. He disciplined them with diet. He said, these things are okay for you to eat. These things are not. He disciplined them with a social structure. He divided them into tribes, and then he divided them into groups of thousands and hundreds and fifties and tens and put judges over them. It's all discipline, all of it. And we see that God's discipline is for our our moral good, our spiritual good, our physical good, our social good. And that's why God disciplines us. And while we must discipline our children as well. Now, if you're looking for letters in front of my name or after my name that confirm that I'm a child psychologist and know what I'm talking about, you won't find them because I don't have them. But I have the Word of God. The Word of God tells me that foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. And discipline drives it from them. And I know the word in Hebrew for foolishness doesn't mean some kind of mental stupidity or mental ineptitude. Foolishness refers to, to what is sinful. So yes, even in the heart of your child, sinfulness is bound up there. And discipline is what curbs that sin that so easily and quickly leads to rebellion against God. And please don't be silly, but does anybody here actually want their child to rebel against God? No. I also see in Scripture a picture of a God who disciplines His children because the foolishness bound up in their hearts, we're all His children. The foolishness bound up in our hearts, the sin bound up in our hearts, will kill us. And so the Lord seeks to drive that foolishness out because He loves us, His children. And He disciplines even though he co- it costs Him to do so. Once again, it seems to me it would be much easier if God truly were the kind of God that the deists painted Him to be in the 17th and 18th centuries. They called Him the watchmaker God who created the universe. He wound it up and then He took off. And he left the universe and our world to unwind however it would, without any interaction or any interference from him. And then God could go and do whatever it is a God who is not intimately involved in his creation goes and does. And I don't know what that is. Because scripture doesn't tell us what that is, because scripture tells us that's not the kind of God that we have. That's not what he's like. He's intimately involved in our lives. The other kind of God is reasonable. Come on. A God of glory? A God of power involved in the lives of people like you and me? Seriously. Do you think he cares about the number of hairs on our head? Yes, he does. That's who scripture claims him to be. He's intimately involved. And he's so involved that he does not abandon us to ourselves. He loves us too much to watch us self-destruct. And so he issues these wake-up calls. He orders them up for us, discipline to save us from ourselves. And who we would certainly be if he didn't care enough to discipline us. Would you turn in the Old Testament, I mean the New Testament to Hebrews? Sorry, I don't have the page number. Hebrews chapter 12. Toward the end of the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 12. 
And I'm going to begin reading in verse 5. Hebrews 12, verse 5. And you have forgotten that word of encouragement that addresses you as sons. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. Endure hardship as discipline. God's treating you as, a, as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of our spirits and live? Our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best. But God disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. God disciplines those he loves. God disciplined the children of Israel. Take the route to the Red Sea. Because he loved them. He sticks with us in the process of making us who we need to be. Again, it's for our good. A righteous life. A life lived doing what's right. That's a good life. A life characterized by peace. That's a good life. God doesn't take the easy way with us. And when a parent says, and and, and it was said to me, this was going to hurt me, son, more than it hurts you. And you're the kid who's getting ready to get the, the belt or the switch. You say, yeah, right. But, but, but it's true. It's true. Jesus didn't take the easy way. Jesus did not take the easy way to obtain for us the life uh, uh, that has the possibility of obedience. He didn't take the easy way in obtaining for us the life that contains the possibility of being more like Him. The way of the cross was not an easy way. And guess what? Guess what? Jesus doesn't take the easy way now. After He was raised in triumph from the tomb, when He was raised from death to life, He returned to His Father in heaven. And He went away, He said, so that He could send His Spirit. So that He could send His Spirit to indwell us. He went away, He said, so that He could take His seat a seed of power and authority at the right hand of God the Father. And let me tell you, that seat is a throne. It's not a lazy boy. It isn't. It's a throne of power. It isn't a lazy boy. And from that throne of power, he works on our behalf, your behalf and mine. Romans 8.34, Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. Right now, working for us. Hebrews 7.25 Therefore, He is able to save completely those who come to God through Him. Because He, Jesus, always lives to intercede for them, for us, right now. 1 John 2.1 My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. Jesus Christ, the Righteous One working for us, for you and for me right now. We love to sing the song here, Arise, 
You know, and we sing five bleeding wounds, five bleeding wounds he bears. Received on Calvary, they pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. Forgive him, they cry. Oh, forgive, they cry. Nor let this ransomed sinner die. It isn't that God is unwilling. It isn't that God needs to be begged to forgive you or to forgive me. It's Jesus' presence at his right hand and and those wounds that he bears, they're just a wonderful reminder that the justice of God has been satisfied. It's a reminder that the price of sin has been paid and because of that, God, though he is God and though he is holy, he can welcome sinners into his presence because they come through faith in Jesus who is always interceding for them. Is that good news? Always coming before the Father on behalf of wayward children. And the Father is pleased to look on Him and pardon me. His sacrifice on the cross makes our salvation possible. His continual intercession makes our obedience possible. Why should we then, you and I, not strive to obey? Look what Jesus has done. Ascended to heaven to send the Spirit for us. Seated at the right hand of the Father to intercede for us. And this is why he's so good at it. Hebrews 5, chapter 7. Chapter 5, verse 7. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, He offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience. Jesus learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Jesus, the man, learned obedience. That doesn't mean that Jesus didn't know what obedience was. It doesn't mean that he was inclined not to obey. It doesn't mean that there was some sin in him that led him toward disobedience unless the Father had made him suffer to not disobey. It's just that Jesus was willing to test through the experiences that he had as a 100% man the power to obey. He learned what it meant to obey, what it cost to obey God in the midst of a sinful world. That's what Jesus learned. And he did it. He learned to obey. He learned to withstand every temptation, every temptation, and not give in and not give up. He learned to stand up against every woe, every heartache that he encountered in this sinful world. And he's shown us that obedience is possible even at the point of deepest temptation or deepest sorrow. We can obey. And so you have to look at your life right now. And I have to look at mine. Because only you and the Lord know how you're doing with obedience. You know that. You know how you're doing with your obedience. And the Lord knows. And you may know, even right now, that what you need in your life is a wake-up call. But you're dreading to Receive it. You know, you need the Lord to put you on the route to the Red Sea. 
Because you know that you need to repent. You know it. I know it. To turn our, our backs on the disobedience in our life, even though it's right there on the edge of beauty and bounty and everything that we think is good. But we need to turn our backs on that and walk toward the desert. Though it doesn't look like a fun place where you and I will learn to trust God. The desert place is the way of obedience, the way of change. And the Lord is going to stick with us every bit of the way. And He is not going to take you to the desert. He is not going to take you to the desert and abandon you there and say, figure it out on your own. Become what you need to be on your own. I'm out of here. No. He, God, along with His discipline, is right beside you. And as verse 31 says, He will carry you as a father carries his son all the way until you reach the place He needs you to be. Because He loves you enough to bless you with the blessing of a life of obedience, a life lived like Christ. That's why He disciplines us. You know, next week we're going to talk more about obedience. We are, and during the course of this week, I'd just like to ask you to pray about what you think that means. What does that look like in your life? What is it that you are to obey? What about us as a church, Redeemer, Presbyterian? What does obedience look like for us? For the Israelites, it meant going and take, taking the, the, the promised land. What does it mean for us? We need to know that. But for right now, we need to make a commitment before the Lord to repent, to obey, and to walk in a new direction toward Him. Let's pray together. And before I pray, we're just going to take a few moments of quietness because if you are anything like me, if you don't take time immediately to do what you know you need to do, plenty of other things will uh, distract you from it. Besides that, there's something very special about God's people being together to worship. So let's just take a few moments, consider how we're doing with obedience, Think about ways we need to repent. Not just say I'm sorry, but to repent. So the Lord doesn't need to send that wake-up call to us. Let's just do business quietly before the Lord.
Father, we do thank you that you love us and care about us enough to discipline us, to set us on the route to the Red Sea. And Lord, we dread it. I dread it. We don't want your discipline because we love the cheeseburgers and the fries and the Coke and the milkshake. We don't want to give it up. And so, Father, if it's only your discipline in our lives that causes us to stop what we know is wrong in our lives, then that discipline can only be called a blessing because you use it to form the character of Christ in us, which is what we need. And it's the way that this life on earth is lived with joy and peace and love and faithfulness and goodness. It's a good life. So, Father, I pray that you would not let us get away from ourselves. But this would just be another to add to our list. Oh, well, I know I need to think about obeying. I know I need to think about repenting. I'll get around to it later. Pray, Lord, that your spirit would impress upon us our need to do it quickly. And to begin even now, this afternoon, to live a life of more obedience to you, a life of more discipline to how you've called us to live our lives. And Father, we can say, because we are people of faith, whatever it is that comes our way, that comes from your hand, whether it's peace, whether it's sorrow, whether it's trouble, we can say it as well, because you are with us, and your love for us and faithfulness to us is unending. We thank you and praise you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.